Henry, tell me about Paul Jabara. Well, Paul Jabara was one of the most creative people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. He happened to be my uncle, but he had a, a huge impact on the world, mostly in the artistic space. He was a, a terrific stage performer in the 60s and 70s, featured in Hair, leading roles in Jesus Christ Superstar and other productions on the West End and Broadway. But what he's most well-known for are for the songs he wrote for other people. Songs like Last Dance by Donna Summer, which won an Oscar and a Grammy and a People's Choice, the main event by Barbara Streisand, and maybe the most famous song of his, which is It's Raining Men by a group called The Weather Girls, which he co-wrote with Paul Schaefer. So, of course, I was growing up with him as my uncle. I didn't really appreciate that not only was he an out-of-the-box artist, there was no box. Really an incredibly creative guy, threw great parties, apparently, and was just an all-around fun and entertaining guy and a real pleasure to know. And his friends loved him dearly. Unfortunately, at a way too early age, at the age of 44, he passed away from AIDS. And this was in 1992, relatively early on in the AIDS epidemic. And it was crushing to our family. Obviously, it took away a very creative spirit in the artistic world, but it was a very personal loss for all of us. What does this have to do with intellectual property, you may ask? Well, back in the 80s, an HIV diagnosis was often tragically a death sentence. Today, People with HIV-AIDS are able to live normal lives thanks to a combination drug treatment commonly called an AIDS cocktail. And there's a very good chance it would not exist if it weren't for the benefits of the intellectual property system. This is Stroke of Genius, proudly presented by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. I'm your host, IP enthusiast, entrepreneur, and business growth specialist, Raha Francis. On this episode, we're going to explore the sometimes misunderstood but critically important world of IP protection in the pharmaceutical industry. We'll also tackle some common misconceptions about things like why certain drugs cost more than others. Receive me, brother, with you, faithless kiss, or will we leave each other alone like this on the streets of Philadelphia? Have you ever seen the 1993 legal drama Philadelphia, starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington? It was one of the first Hollywood films to explicitly address HIV-AIDS and the stigma surrounding the disease. The cast even included 53 extras who were infected at the time of shooting. And sadly, 43 of them had passed away before the end of the very next year. Today, a lot has changed. If someone is diagnosed with HIV, there are dozens of life-extending drugs available. But it wasn't as simple as scientists just working away in a lab. Intellectual property protection was also a critical component of the process. To explain how, I'm excited to introduce today's guest, whom you heard from at the start of the episode. Henry Haddad is a senior vice president and deputy general counsel at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Henry, welcome to Stroke of Genius. Thank you, Raha. Thanks for being here, and thanks so much for sharing your uncle's story with us as well. I do want to hear more about him, but I'd also like to know more about you and your work first. What's your origin story? (laughs) What's my origin story? Well, it's funny because it did sort of start with him in a way. Both he and my father, 
so not his brother, but my, my dad, were songwriters. Uh, my dad in the 50s and 60s, my uncle more in the 70s and 80s. And one thing they reiterated to me over and over again is it's all very well and good to go into the arts, but you know, you really should go into the law because they end up always doing okay. That must have rubbed off on me because ultimately I did go to law school, but also had a science degree and was able to combine my love of the sciences with my interest in law in a career largely in patent law and IP law, where I learned so much about the drug discovery and development process. I started out in private practice, ultimately went in-house to Shearing Plow Corporation for over a decade, some time at Johnson & Johnson. And then for the past 11 and a half years, I've been at Bristol-Myers Squibb running the intellectual property group in the company. That's quite the resume, Henry. Can you give us some examples of the types of drugs that were developed by those companies over the course of your career? Yeah, a wide range of different drugs, which uh, really addressed areas of serious unmet medical need. You know, there were drugs for treatment of brain cancer and lung and melanoma. There were cardiovascular drugs that were developed from lowering your cholesterol levels to preventing stroke. There were autoimmune drugs that were developed to address rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and other types of autoimmune diseases. So really a wide range of different drugs. And there were, of course, drugs that were developed and used to treat infectious diseases as well, like HIV. Having been in the industry for so long, Henry, I'm sure you've heard a lot of talk about well, in particular, drug prices. But let's start with the life cycle of drug development first, because I think that's something that a lot of people might not fully grasp. Yeah, it's an amazing story, Raha. And, and frankly, it's surprising how many successes there have been because of the challenges in trying to discover and develop new drugs. It really starts with great science. That science may come from the discovery labs at a company like Bristol-Myers Squibb or any one of a number of other innovative biopharma companies. Some basic platform discoveries may come from research institutions or academic institutions as well. But it is very much about finding new targets that could treat serious diseases, creating drugs which hit those targets, finding out of the either chemical compounds or biologics that you create, which have the best mix of both efficacy and safety, and then trying to develop these drugs from the beginning, from the basic active ingredient to then formulating it into something that a person could take either as a pill or as an intravenous drug, and then ultimately doing the clinical trials needed to establish from a regulatory perspective that you are meeting the requirements of safety and efficacy such that people, physicians, and patients can feel confident that this drug will address some of the serious conditions that the, that's indicated for. It's a long process. There are many, many, many more failures and successes. It costs north of a billion dollars, often $2 billion to get a drug to market. And then whatever money you're making in terms of revenue on the sales of that drug is not only driven back into future innovation, which are successful, but the countless failures as well. So you're basically paying it forward in a way. When you create a new drug, the revenue from there ends up being used to fund the next generation of research. And that's the innovation cycle that goes on that fuels the next generation of therapies. Got it, Henry. 
And for those who aren't as familiar, could you maybe explain to us the path to generic drugs and how IP factors into that and the timeline, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, right? This is a technology like any technology, like your iPhone or your car. And so you're able to protect aspects of it if they're innovative, if they're new, if they're not obvious, if you're teaching the world how to make and use it, you're able to get a limited period of protection through the patent system. But on top of that, there is a different layer of policy that was made back in the early 1980s called the Hatch-Waxman Act. And that applies to what I'll call pharmaceuticals, which are the kind of things you take in pills. And then a little later on, an analogous statute was created around 2012 around biologics, which are often the things you would take intravenously. But the bottom line is it allows other companies to reference the data you've generated. So you've spent billions of dollars creating this drug, developing this drug, doing the clinical trials on this drug. And then back in the early 80s, there was a consideration, well, does that make sense to make other companies have to reproduce all that? And won't that delay patients getting more access to drugs? So the decision was made under these acts to allow companies, which were then called generic companies, who don't do any basic drug discovery or any development, just to basically reference your data, show that their drug is very similar to yours, and that's enough for them to get approved. And then there is a degree of price competition that goes on, and that ends up reducing the price of drugs and increasing access all around the world. And in fact, it's over 90% of all drugs prescribed are currently generic drugs because there's only a limited period of protection. And then there's forever in the future of availability of drugs, both innovative and generic. So you have a branded product. After said limited period of protection, it goes generic. Then what happens for this company? Would the company still sell it? Yeah, quite often they do. But the real magic of this statutory scheme is that it drives innovators to keep innovating, right? There's no resting on your laurels because you know one day, even if you have a particularly good drug, which is successful, that that drug will go off patent. It will be priced differently right? It'll be available to everybody or all around the world for, for pennies on the dollar. So you do have to continue innovating. And that drives the innovative engine of, of companies to continue creating great new therapies for patients. And the one thing I just have to really make sure it's really clear is that the people I work with are truly heroes. The scientists that are in the labs, often unsung, often underappreciated for sure, that are coming up with the new paradigms of treatment and then are tirelessly working on getting them to patients are, are just outstanding individuals that I've gotten the chance to work with, to know, and I really feel privileged to have had that opportunity. I'm curious, how do pharmaceutical companies find the time and money it takes to develop these rock star teams you're talking about with the necessary expertise to invent these drugs in the first place? Yeah, it's it's really difficult, right? There is a war for talent, right, in every industry, but it's it's certainly not any lesser in the life sciences. And you know, we have at least at BMS, we have research hubs in some of the hottest scientific areas in Cambridge, in the Bay Area, Seattle, San Diego, New Jersey. You know, these are all areas where we know there's a hotbed of great science going on, and it also allows you not just to work with your internal scientists but to build relationships with small biotechs, 
with academic institutions. And certainly a lot of innovative companies, they look everywhere to see where the greatest science is going on and where they can take advantage of that such that they can create the next therapy. I think one of the most inspiring things I've ever heard, one of our scientists who had a critical role in bringing immuno-oncology to patients, that is a whole new paradigm in treating cancer by turning on your immune system, he was asked, do you feel some degree of satisfaction about bringing this new therapy to patients? He stopped, he looked at the reporter, he said, no, I feel deeply concerned about all the patients that still aren't treated, that still need more therapies. And, you know, we're at the sort of the very beginning of a lot of therapies where you look at one drug and you say, well, can it be combined with another? Is there a different dosing? Is there a different way to introduce the dose to a patient which could help them treat specific diseases? And we're learning more and more every day. We've done some great things as an industry, but there's so much more to be done. This is fascinating stuff, Henry. I have so many more questions for you about what you've touched on and about IP in particular as as how it relates to this. And I'd also like to tackle some concerns and misconceptions. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Raha Francis, and you're listening to Stroke of Genius, the podcast that explores intellectual property from the perspective of successful inventors, innovators, and creators. This season, we're tackling some myths and misconceptions to help you better understand how to navigate the tricky world of IP protection and learn how the system can work for everyone, especially people from historically underrepresented communities. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the work of the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, just visit ipoef.org. Welcome back. Today, I'm learning about the role of intellectual property in the pharmaceutical industry and how IP protection drives the development of life-changing drugs. My guest is Henry Haddad, Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Henry, I'd like to expand on the IP angle that we briefly touched upon earlier. Of the many types of intellectual property protection, which one do you think applies most directly to drug development and why? Well, while many types of IP like trade secrets and trademarks are involved with the biopharmaceutical industry, really patents are the backbone of the type of protection that is needed to create the innovation cycle that brings new therapies to patients. And that's because patents are really designed to protect things that you use. So they could cover the active ingredient, a new chemical structure, a new biological structure. They could cover a new use that wasn't known about that active ingredient. They could cover a novel formulation, maybe a way to administer through the nose or, or, or intravenously in a way that wasn't known before. They could cover methods of manufacture. So the patent system is really there to protect innovations around the drugs themselves and how you use and make them. Now, I hate to bring this person up, but when a lot of people think about the pharmaceutical industry, they often think of the pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, who was widely criticized in the news for jacking up the price of a drug, I think it was Daraprim, used to treat toxoplasmosis. How do you push back against the idea, the misconception that greed is to blame for high drug prices? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough question, right? Because, of course, you get folks, outliers like, like Mr. Shkreli, who don't 
even represent innovative companies. He was part of a generic company that took advantage of a shortfall in the availability of drug and hiked up prices in a way which was inappropriate. You know, that you get tarred with that type of conduct when you're there with these great scientists creating these new drugs and trying to bring them to patients is sort of a maybe a bit of a misconception that uh, media, you know, helps flame. But I think if you take a step back, I said from the outset that you needed a limited period of protection to justify the huge investments you make in R&D. It takes about 12 years to get a drug to market. There's countless failures of other drugs along the way. I mean, these are so, it's so fraught with risk and challenge. If you don't have that limited period of exclusivity before other parties can join you on the market and copy you, then you're never going to make it in the first place. And that's the danger, that we don't keep that innovation cycle going. Because if we don't do that, smart people are not going to go to an industry where there's no ability to innovate. And we don't want to create a brain drain, and we don't want to drive life sciences folks away from creating new drugs, particularly since we are really at the very cusp of some huge, incredible discoveries around precision medicine and the use of biomarkers to tailor drugs specifically to the disease you have, to the mutations you have in a cancer. These are all things we should be really cognizant of and be really thoughtful about before we do any damage to the system. On that topic, Henry, we also hear of terms like patent thickets mm. or evergreening. What do they mean? And what's your response to people calling out companies on using those tactics? You know, it's like anything, Raha. It's one of these things where people throw around loose language and it becomes sort of a meme and people use, these, use this language to encompass anything they don't like, right? So I would guess that if someone created a new drug which was useful for treating, let's use autoimmune disease. If, if you had a drug which could be used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, and then it was actually found out that it's potentially useful to treat lupus or psoriasis, wouldn't you want that research to be done? Well, if you do, and it's innovative and it meets the criteria for patentability, you probably get a patent around that. If that drug could be administered by an auto-injector, rather than having to go in the hospital and take it intravenously every month, wouldn't you rather be able to do that? If you could manufacture it more cheaply and more effectively and more consistently, wouldn't you want to encourage companies to do that work? So right now, I've just described four different possible patents around a drug. Not that many when you consider that an iPhone or any tech device has literally hundreds of patents around it. So a handful of patents to some represents great innovation and to others could be called a patent thicket or evergreening. And it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. I think most people who are knowledgeable and actually look at the facts of a specific situation say, oh yeah, I want people to continue innovating. And we know that the original innovations go off patent earlier and the next ones go off patent then the next one's the next one's. This is not forever. There is a limited period of patent protection, and it's even, even shorter than most industries. The average patent protection for a drug is between 11 and 12 years, and for any other technology is at least 20 years. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind when we consider tampering with the innovation engine that the patent system provides. Got it. Thanks for that context, Henry. So 
What do you wish the public understood or maybe understood better about the pharmaceutical industry based on your work in it? I think first off, the incredible dedication and focus of our scientists and frankly, all the colleagues that work in the industry. I've seen firsthand at several companies and certainly at Bristol-Myers Squibb. There is a singular laser-like focus on helping patients. It is so energizing to be in a place like that where you're doing great things for people, for the public in general, for your own family members, maybe for yourself one day. I mean, these are all incredible people who are dedicating their life to trying to improve lives. It's very inspiring. I think that people do tend to see the political football aspect of the industry. Oh, drug prices are high, and sometimes they are high. And there are various ways to address them. But doing damage to the patent system would be the worst way, because instead of having some drugs, which for a limited period of time are more highly priced than they go generic, you will have no drugs or much fewer drugs, because no, you can't justify the investment and the risk that you would take without that limited period of protection. So I think having a more nuanced discussion, which is difficult to do in the public arena, is really critical for people to understanding how important IP is to the industry. Henry, I I want to switch gears and talk about the countries that make the world's pharmaceuticals. Question for you, why do most drugs originate in places like the US, Japan, and Western Europe? Yeah, you know, the three countries slash regions you've mentioned all have something in common, which is robust intellectual property protection. And it's not a coincidence. I think these are countries which have prized innovation and prized a free market system to help perpetuate that innovation. So those two combinations seem to have led to the greatest revolutions in in treatment. And we've seen it firsthand recently, most frankly, with the pandemic. I mean, it was truly incredible not just to see the way many private and public entities got together to figure out a solution to this, but the record time in what took to get a vaccine from companies like Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech and J&J. This happened in an exponentially very short time using new technology that was developed over the past decade or so. And then you see all the potential therapies to try to reduce the the, uh, inflammatory effects of the virus or to try to address the thrombotic issues of the virus. All of these things were done in an incredible quick fashion through the partnership of different companies and public and private institutions to to attack this solution. Uh, Very inspiring. Speaking of inspiring, I want to circle back to your uncle's story and the impact he had on you as a kid growing up in Brooklyn or even now. How does he continue to inspire you? Having now outlived him by a number of years, I truly appreciate his creativity, his generosity of spirit, how much he inspired so many people, a whole generation of artists and a whole style of music. He did much more, though, than just inspiring music. And, and, you know, I didn't even know this at the time while he was alive, but he played a very big role in folks adopting the Red Ribbon 
in support of AIDS uh, patients and AIDS research. And he was one of the early adopters of it and was acknowledged as someone who had a, a key role in making this a uh, universal thing. And, and, you know, thinking back 30 years ago, because September marks the 30th anniversary of his passing, it was a terrible time uh, for me. It was, I was in my 20s and I was tending to a dying man and along with my aunt and my mom. And so many men would come over to the house and I would find out that they all had HIV and they would literally go house to house helping the one who was the sickest. And then another one of them would get sick and then another one of them gets sick. It was incredibly tragic and it was a different time, right? Socially and from a drug treatment standpoint. And, you know, I know that sometime in the early, uh, excuse me, the late eighties, the first drug treatment came out ACT, which had some benefit, but certainly wasn't the solution. And then later on in the nineties, antiretrovirals came out and some other variations of drugs, which were really about interfering with HIV's ability to replicate in the system. And little by little, you know, you'd have these single therapies, right? And then ultimately from a patient compliance standpoint, it helped having combo therapies. So people would combine the drugs and you know, my company, BMS, had a role in that, but many companies did. And then ultimately, different classes of drugs got approved. And, you know, we're at a point, we have not cured this awful disease. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. But for many patients, it's a condition, it's a chronic condition that they can manage and lead longer in lives. It's not the death sentence it used to be. And I really think that drug research and development had a huge part in that. And I hope in a small way, Paul's life and Paul's passing influenced the direction of that drug research. It certainly inspired me. I don't even know if he really appreciated how brave he was by being out there at Hollywood events, wearing the red ribbon, being an inspiration for folks. Sometimes you only find these things out later, but it just made me appreciate him all the more. That's really inspirational and touching. And thanks so much for sharing, Henry. Thanks also for being a part of Stroke of Genius. Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, this interview, but I also appreciate Stroke of Genius bringing stories like this out for everyone to hear. I think it's a really important way to educate everybody on the importance of intellectual property and its role in, in helping people. My guest today has been Henry Haddad, Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Bristol-Myers Squibb. It's no secret the pharmaceutical industry sometimes gets a bad rap. But as Henry so eloquently and passionately pointed out, drug development depends on IP because companies wouldn't be able to develop and produce their next product without raising funds from the products that came before. Henry calls it a necessary driver of the economic engine. The truth is, there simply wouldn't be a generic drug industry without patents on the groundbreaking treatments that came first. The fact that patents expire in time also means that scientists and drug makers can't rest on their laurels for too long. They have to keep on innovating to keep the development cycle going. It's like a never-ending game of whack-a-mole as new diseases and health threats continue to emerge. I'm Raha Francis, and this is Stroke of Genius, brought to you by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, you can visit ipoef.org. Bye for now.